with me to the book of Psalms, and this morning we are in Psalm 103, Psalm, excuse me, Psalm 102, Psalm 102 as we continue uh, week two of our 10 weeks of our summer in the Psalms. We'll start at Psalm 101, we'll end at Psalm 110. And then, Lord willing, and if the Lord tarries and the creek doesn't rise next summer, we'll pick it up at Psalm 111. While you're turning, I want to give a a report and then uh, ask for your prayers. Uh, Had a very good meeting on Monday. I told you I was meeting with an individual who can probably come and help us do some music. And so hopefully this fall, uh, between Bryce and this individual, the Sundays in which we are singing with pre-recorded music and slides will be the exception and not the rule. And so we will continue to pray to that end, uh, but had a really good meeting with that individual. Uh, a, a lot of similarities in terms of approach and uh, how he thinks about what's going on in the service. And so uh, really grateful for that, and for those meetings. And so we'll just pray that the Lord will be gracious to us in that. Uh, also, uh, this upcoming week is our General Assembly for our denomination. It's being held in Memphis, Tennessee. And so immediately following the morning service, I'm running home, changing my clothes, kissing my wife, getting in a rented minivan, driving to Omaha where I'm picking up three guys uh, from Harvest, uh, Andrew Leitner being one of them. And then we're heading south. We're going to stop in Nebraska City and pick up Isaac Terwilliger and then make our way today to Memphis. Because at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning, uh, we have uh, the work of our denomination to do. And so I'm on the Committee of Commissioners for Covenant Theological Seminary. So I'll have that to do Monday and Tuesday. And other guys have other responsibilities. Tuesday evening, the assembly as a whole will open. And so uh, if you want to go, you want to follow what's going on, you can go to By Faith Magazine uh, to their website and they will have updates as to what's happening and things that are transpiring as part of General Assembly. Psalm 102, a prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I am like a desert owl in the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse, for I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. 
Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord, that he look down from his holy height. From heaven the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord, and in Jerusalem his praise. When peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord, he has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. O my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure through all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, now bless these few moments, for we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. One thing we really do not do well as 21st century Americans is we do not lament. We complain just fine. We fuss and we moan about our situations, but we don't do lament. We've been told that our lives should only be amazing all the time. And I need only speak my awesomeness out loud to manifest it to the universe. And sure enough, it will come to pass. What's even more ridiculous is that many parts of the American evangelical church have joined in on this charade. We don't lament. We merely go from victory unto victory unto victory, speaking out and claiming in Jesus' name what is rightfully ours. Now, to be fair, it is hard to do lament well. There is a very fine line between lamenting and just plain old belly aching. It's why Psalm 102 is so important. The psalmist teaches us how to do lament rightly how to make sure that we keep the main thing the main thing as we ourselves are afflicted and faint and pouring out our complaint before the Lord as we read in the superscription. We also cannot miss where the compiler of the Psalms puts Psalm 102. Psalm 101 that we looked at last week is a Psalm of justice. David calls us in that psalm to look ahead to the day in which God's forever king returns and executes his perfect justice. But that day is not here, not yet. And so, in a fallen world, in a broken world, in an unjust world, in a world where oftentimes we have more questions than we get answers, Lament is a skill 
that every person looking for the second advent of Jesus needs to grow in proficiency. Now, on page five in your bulletin, you'll see there an outline for our time together. And you see the big idea. And the big idea this morning for Psalm 102 is this. Christians respond to tragedy by lament and trust in Christ. Christians respond to tragedy by lament and trust in Christ. Three points we want to make this morning. They are the three ways in which the text is divided. First, we see that there are indeed days of lament. There are indeed days of lament. Now, we need to understand right from the very get-go that lament is okay. We don't want to be doing it all the time. You don't want to have a sort of Eeyore personality. You don't want to be a pessimist for whom the glass is always half full, or excuse me, half empty. But we do need to understand that living in a world which is broken and living in a world that is fallen and living in a world that is unjust means that there are times and seasons and situations and occasions in which lament is the only proper response. We cannot simply walk around and claim that we have been blessed, though we have. We cannot simply walk around naming our blessings and declaring that we're going from victory to victory to victory to victory. No, there are things in this world that should break our hearts. There are things in this world that should cause us to lament. The writer's lament this morning is driven by suffering. And like Job, the psalmist is uncertain as to why this particular kind of suffering is happening. Now again, this is instructive for us. Because most Christians don't necessarily have a biblical view of suffering. We have more of a karma understanding of suffering. If I do bad things... I can expect bad things to come my way. But if I do good things, then I ought to expect that the universe, whatever that means, is going to send good things my way. Well, friends, that's not a biblical understanding of how suffering works. It's not a biblical understanding of how it is that people who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, nonetheless come across situations that cause suffering. Now, the writer ultimately is going to locate two sources of consternation. There are two relational elements that drive this lament. The first is found for us in verse 8. In verse 8, we're told, All the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. Now, if you went to public school and you have a particular vintage, uh, you know what it's like to have your name or your last name turned into a moniker of scorn and derision. It's not hard to picture what it would be like for your name to be used as a curse. Uh, I think in this is in. And we all know as a parent, you fail your children in multiple ways. I think one of the ways in which we failed our kids is that they never got made fun of in public school. That's not to say we didn't make fun of them because we're their parents and that's our job. But we never made, they never got made fun of in a public school setting. They never uh, got 
told that Gabrielle rhymes with boy I smell or something like that. And they, they never had to undergo any of that kind of stuff. Well, the psalmist does. And the psalmist says, one of the things that's causing me to lament is that I have enemies. And my enemies are taunting me. They deride me. They use my name for a curse. The other reason, then, that the psalmist says he is lamenting is because of God himself. The psalmist says, I'm eating ashes like bread, verse 9, and mingle tears with my drink. Why? Because of God's indignation and God's anger. God has both raised him up and then thrown him down. So there's something about the providence of God. There's something about the way in which God is sovereignly overseeing the days and the events and the occasions of the psalmist's life that the psalmist just doesn't understand. And it feels like it's a roller coaster. And he's saying, not surprisingly, I'd like to get off this ride. God, I don't understand what it is that you're doing but it feels like I'm the object of your indignation. It feels like I'm the object of your anger. Now, there is a kind of Christianity that will seek to tell you that if you're suffering, if you find yourself in lamentable straits, it's because you've sinned. You must have some sort of unconfessed sin in your life. But that's not what Psalm 102 is teaching us. Now, to be clear, it is always a good idea to repent and to engage in self-examination. And yet, as we're going to see as we get to the end of this psalm, as we make the turn and we understand that this psalm in many ways is speaking about Jesus, let's understand that Jesus was sinless. Jesus was perfect. And yet... Jesus was crushed by both his enemies and by God. When we say, I don't understand because it feels like the anger of the Lord is upon me. We, I hope, understand that as, as human beings, we're speaking of that imperfectly. But Jesus himself actually literally bore the anger of God on the cross. He bore the wrath of God. On the cross. And so as we think about that there, there, there are indeed times and seasons to lament, and we want to be careful, we want to examine ourselves, we want to be humble in these things, and we want to be careful in our discernment, because sometimes what's going on is it, it, you're not suffering because you're like Jesus, you're suffering because you're, well, you're a jerk. You have enemies because you don't treat people particularly well. And yes, the Lord's favor isn't shining upon you because you really don't care what it is that God says to you in his word and you've done nothing to cultivate your relationship with God. As I said, our, our kids uh, didn't go to public school outside of, well, there were a couple semesters and part-time, but uh, our, our kids and SAS girls were a part of something called Classical Conversations. And one year, Alex and Nathaniel had the most aggravating tutor I've ever met in my entire life. Um, if she hadn't been a woman, I would have punched her in her throat. Uh, 
I'm, I'm kidding, but only sort of when I, when I say that. And they were doing science homework, and they had this assignment to read these certain biblical texts that were supposed to be arguing for six days of creation. And I remember calling, I called Ben and we were talking, we were looking over this stuff because Nathaniel's got me, I'm, we're doing the homework and it's something out of Ezekiel. And I'm like, this, this doesn't have anything to do with six days of creation. This is God saying, hey, I created all of this. So guess what? I get to judge it. That's the point. Don't try to read more into the text. And so we talked about it. He said, yeah, I, I agree. This is, I, I, I don't like the way she's teaching kids to read the text. And so he called or he emailed her and I called and I was talking to her and said, hey, I, can we just touch base about this? Because this is I'm really uncomfortable with how you're teaching my son in particular to read the Bible. This, it's not a science textbook. So stop using it like it is. Uh, it's true in ways that transcend science. And you're you're not teaching them that you're teaching them a really crappy way to read the Bible. And we can do that on our own. We don't need your help, right, to learn those kinds of bad habits. And her response to me was, well, I'm just a humble servant of the text. And she said it in this really condescending way that, again, if I could have punched her in the throat through the phone, I probably would have. And I remember then at the end of the year banquet talking about it was hard and, and she got up and there was some, you know, she felt like, in some ways, there's always suffering involved in teaching. And as she does show, she's kind of looking at me like this and see her kind of catching Ben's eye and kind of giving this weird, she had this weird, like passive aggressive Nebraska nice thing going on. And it's just like, no, listen, you're not suffering because you're Christ-like. You're suffering because you're a pompous jerk. I've suffered that way. Not because I'm like Jesus, but because I'm a jerk. I suspect you've suffered that way too. So as we think about lament, and as we think about what it is that Psalm 102 is telling us, let's and as we seek to discern what's happening in our lives, let's do so with a particular sense of humility. Let's do so being careful. And quick, not to go, oh, the Lord's doing this to me. No, <laughs> I'm doing it to myself. I have met the enemy, and he is me. Secondly, we see in the psalmist that there's more to this life. There's a beautiful contrast that's going on in Psalm 102. And the contrast is signified for us in verse 12 with the conjunction, but. The psalmist is worn out. The psalmist is feeling faint. He's pouring out his complaint before the Lord. And he takes comfort, not that he is uh, fragile, not that he's lamenting, not that this is the common lot of human beings in life, but he takes comfort in the fact that over and against human frailty, you have the eternality of God. And the Psalms are very consistent in this particular approach. Yes, the Psalms are wisdom. Yes, the Psalms... Help us to live this life in ways that are God-honoring and helpful and healthy. But the Psalms are also reminding us that there is a life that is yet to come. And so I would simply say, if you read the Psalms and come to the conclusion 
that all that God is doing in his world can somehow be contained in this life, then you're not reading the Bible rightly. You're misunderstanding the text. And in verses 12 to 22, the psalmist points us to the fact that all that God is going to do can't be contained in a seven or 80 year time span. It can't even be contained in three or four generations. No, it's going to take an eternity. So as the Lord speak, as, as we read of God having pity on Zion in verse 13, and a time to favor her, and an appointed time. The psalmist is not looking forward to the 70 years after the fall of Jerusalem that's promised in Jeremiah, and the restoration that's going to happen in Ezra and Nehemiah. That's not what he has in mind. Though certainly, this text would have encouraged men like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, those who are living in exile outside of Israel. But it speaks to the restoration and continuation of Zion, just not the Zion, just not the Jerusalem that they came from. Keep your finger in Psalm 102, but turn with me, if you would, in your Bible to the very end. Go to Revelation chapter 21. So, like, literally, just go to the end of your Bible. Uh, go left from the maps. And it's it's literally the second from the last, actually, yeah, second from the last chapter of the Bible. Revelation chapter 21, verse 9. It's page 1251 in your pew Bible, if you're using the pew Bible. And listen to uh, this restoration of Zion that the psalmist speaks about. Listen to the language that John uses in Revelation chapter 21, verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels. Actually, you know what? Uh, how about if we do... Yeah, no, that's right. Did I write I wrote that down right? Yeah. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven plagues and spoke to me. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the 12 gates and on the and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. You see, the Zion that the psalmist is speaking of, and the restoration and the continuation of Zion, doesn't have to do with a place located in modern-day Israel in the Middle East. No, he's here speaking about the new Jerusalem. He's speaking about that time in which uh, the Lord, in which Christ is revealed. And after Christ comes in glory and in power and in judgment, then the new Jerusalem will be let down from the heavens. Now, please understand, when we speak this way, this is not the Bible uh, giving us just some sort of pie in the sky by and by. Rather, it's an honest assessment of just how broken and fallen our world is. Friends, everything that God wants to do cannot be done in the world 
as it's currently constituted. Sin still exists in our world. And the new Zion, the new Jerusalem that God has in mind, there will be no evildoer, no thief, no murderer, no adulterer. Nothing unclean will be allowed to enter it. And so this is not merely the power of positive thinking. No, this is what the Bible describes as hope. God is not done working yet. And we know that what he is going to do is he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. And when he does, the Jerusalem, like the one that John describes for us in Revelation 21, that's going to be the place in which God's people dwell. That's going to be the place in which the kings of the earth are going to uh, affirm the glory of the Lord. It's not here yet, but it's coming. Finally, then, in verses 23 to 28, we're led in on a very interesting conversation. It's a conversation between someone and God. And the someone says in verse 23, He, God, has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. And then we see the prayer. Oh, my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. And then there's God speaking. There's God answering. And so the question then becomes, who is this conversation between? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us that beginning in verse 25, it's God the Father speaking of God the Son. And so the cry of the Lord Jesus Christ is, Oh, Lord, oh, my God, take me not away in the midst of my day, you whose years endure throughout all generations. It's God the Son praying to God the Father. And now, in verse 25, it's God the Father speaking of God the Son. So in other words, it's the frailty of humanity married together now with the eternal power and glory and grandeur of God. God the Father, is speaking now of God the Son. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will not pass away, but you are the same and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. How is it that on the one hand, Jesus can say, you've broken my strength in mid-course, and then in response, God the Father will say to him, they will perish, but you will remain. How does that work? Well, the answer is the cross. On the cross... Jesus was broken. On the cross, Jesus shed his blood. On the cross, the days of the Lord Jesus Christ were shortened. On the cross, God took away his son from the land of the living. 
And yet, and yet, God the Father resurrected God the Son in power and in glory. And God can say, God the Father can say of God the Son, of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. Friends, whenever we think of lament, and whenever circumstances in our lives, or whenever the situation in which we find ourselves drives us to lament, we need always to ground that lament or to finish that lament as the psalmist does in thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He was not just blameless, he was sinless, and yet he was crushed. It was God's will to crush him. He literally took upon himself the wrath and anger of God. And yet, and yet, God resurrected him. And the Bible tells us that the Jesus who is resurrected, who is now ascended into heaven and sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, that same Jesus will return again one day in power and in glory and in judgment. And after Christ returns, the new heavens and the new earth are going to be established. It's good to lament. It's okay to lament. But we can't stay there. We can't stay there. This morning as we come to the table, we are reminded that, yes, the table speaks to us of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But the table also points us to the kingdom that is coming. The table reminds us that the Son of God is going to establish a kingdom, an eternal kingdom, for his Father. And if you're here this morning and you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then that kingdom is what you have to look forward to. I pray this morning that your hope is not in a perfect America, for there has never been a perfect America and there never will be. I pray this morning, though, that your hope is in the heavenly Zion, the city that is yet to come, because, friends, it will be perfect. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, uh, thank you for the way this psalm tells us not only of our own situation, but thank you for the way in which this psalm points us to Jesus. And we pray, as your people that we would be those who lament, not complain, not bellyache, but we would engage when it is appropriate and reasonable to do so, that we would engage in lament, but Lord, that we would not stay there. That we would have always on our lips the prayer of uh, the Apostle John when he said, Amen, come quickly, Lord Jesus. For ultimately, that is the only answer that Christ will return, he will defeat all enemies, the last enemy to be destroyed being death. And then when he has returned, the kingdom will be established. Father, may we live looking forward to that day. May we order our lives 
with that day in mind. For we pray all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.